0: Welcome to the podcast for Windsor Road Baptist Church. Prepare your heart to receive God's message. As the water and snow come down from heaven and not return to it without watering the earth, making it bud and flourish so as to provide seed for the sower and bread for the eater. Father, I pray that your word, as it goes out from your mouth this morning, will not return to you empty, but that it will accomplish all that you desire and will achieve your purpose for which you send it. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. If a picture paints a thousand words about parenting, this is a great one. It's a great one. Uh, the idealistic picture and the and the realistic one. Parents make many sacrifices for their children, many for which they're never thanked. I am personally guilty of this when I look back at my relationship with my parents. Uh as for my own children one of the things i did as a complete labor of love when they were young was teaching them nursery rhymes and other catchy but monotonous children's songs all parents can relate to this at the start it was okay until they asked me to do it over and over and over again with action thrown in again daddy as they chuckled and sometimes i had to say I had to draw the line in the sand that's enough And they go, oh, upset and bemused that I couldn't match their enthusiasm. Another sacrifice was watching children's movies with them. On the whole, I have to say, this was quite enjoyable. I love the Disney classics like Pinocchio, 101 Dalmatians, Jungle Book, Aristocats, just to name a few. But my all-time favorite, uh, which has become a classic, is The Lion King. And I've watched this uh, 1994 animation flick more than once on a very well-worn VCR. If you're old enough, you know what that is. The Lion King tells the story of a young uh, prince, young lion prince named Simba, son of Mufasa and Sarabi, anointed by Rafiki, a baboon, Mufasa's most trusted advisor, as the heir apparent to his father's kingdom. Simba's wicked uncle, Mufasa, uh, uh, Scar, had other plans. He murders Mufasa in a staged accident, but he convinces Simba into believing that he caused the accident and therefore the death of his son, of his dad. He then tells Simba to run away because the pride of lions will blame him for his father's death. So Simba goes into exile. With that, Scar takes over the throne. But many years later, Simba, an adult now, receives news, troubling news, that Scar is running his father's kingdom into the ground. He now has a difficult choice to make. Keep running, keep running, and remain in exile, or stop, turn around and face his fears and shame head-on as Mufasa's heir and restore peace and order in his father's kingdom. What will he do? In the best scene of the movie, we have Rafiki the baboon tracking Simba down. Simba doesn't recognize him, but he's finding this eccentric Rafiki annoying, and he tells him to stop following him. Who are you? He asks Rafiki. Rafiki replies, the more important question is, who are you? Simba lets out a deep sigh. I thought I knew. I thought I knew, but now I'm not so sure. Rafiki replies, well, I know who you are. You're Mufasa's boy. And he takes off. In shock and restrained joy, Simba runs after Rafiki. He must be an old friend of his dad. And thinking that Rafiki had not heard the bad news, he tells him that, that Mufasa is dead. Simba, you can tell, is still visibly and emotionally traumatized and gutted by the death of his father, which he still blames himself for. But Rafiki replies enthusiastically, He's alive! And I'll show you, I'll show him to you. He's alive, and I'll show him to you. He runs off again and pursued Simba, more intrigued than anything else. Rafiki then leads Simba to a watering hole, and he tells Simba, Look down there. With great apprehension, Simba walks to the edge of the watering hole, peers into it, but only to see a reflection of himself. That's not my father, that's just my reflection, he tells Rafiki in despair and also slightly irritated, to which Rafiki said, no, look harder, look harder. Simba has another go. This time, the reflection he sees changes into Mufasa. Rafiki then says, you see, he lives in you. He lives in you. Then he has a vision of Mufasa in the heavens in which Mufasa ever says so gently to Simba, you have forgotten me. It was more than an observation, than an accusation. Simba pushes back. No, how could I forget you, dad? Mufasa continues. You have forgotten who you are, and so you have forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. You are more than what you have become. You must return. Simba pushes back yet again. How can I go back? I'm not who I used to be. Mufasa stands his ground in that vision and says to Simba, remember who you are. You are my son, the one true king. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. That's James Earl Jones, a lovely, warm voice. Remember. Oh, it gives shivers. It sends me, shivers. This morning, I want to pick up where I left off last week when I spoke about our theme verse for this year, which comes from Colossians chapter one, verses, uh, verse 27, part B, in which Paul said to the Colossians, that, as a result of them hearing, believing, and obeying the gospel, they have been given a new, a brand new, and life-changing identity that completes them. And that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's the only identity that's permanent. It's the only identity that lasts, and it's the it's an identity that is given and received. It can't be earned. This is who God says we are. This is how God sees us every single time. In the words of a beautiful song that I will teach you in a couple of weeks' time, we carry his life in our veins. We carry his life in our veins. or we carry his blood in our veins. But I'm not telling you anything new, am I? If you're a follower of Jesus, you already know that. You know that Christ lives in you. But like Simba, maybe you're not so sure anymore because of some life's curveballs that you've had to face or are facing. These life curveballs are mostly manageable. However, every now and then, there's one that comes along that hits us so hard we can't tell the north from the south. Perhaps it's something you've done in the past or something you're doing in the present for which you feel tremendous amount of shame and a tremendous amount amount of guilt. Maybe it's your childhood. Maybe it's your upbringing. And you've asked God to heal you. You've asked God to sort you out. For something you've done that you're ashamed of. You've asked God for forgiveness, but you've not been able to receive it. Or maybe life hasn't worked out the way you had hoped and thought. Like being able to have a family. Having your dream job. Having your finances, your relationships, and your health where you like them to be. But they're not. And you've been questioning if God is who he says he is. And you're starting to doubt if God is who, if, God, if you are who God says you are. And gradually you have drifted into self-exile like Simba. Literally or metaphorically speaking. Some people I've heard say, I need a break from God. I need a break from God. I need to sort myself out. I need to sort my thinking out. For some, self-exile starts out with coming to church less, praying less, reading the Bible less, connecting with other Christians less, gradually, until they stop altogether. And for others, self-exile is keeping God at arm's length. They still do all of the Christian stuff, sort of. But there is cynicism in their hearts. There's hardness in their hearts. There's a coldness. And yet for others, they may bury themselves in work, new interests, new friendships. If this is you, if this is the season you're you're in right now, where your internal compass is spinning out of control, if you feel stuck in this season, then God wants to say to you this morning, go to the lake, as it were, or take a closer look in the mirror. Do you see what God wants you to see? And that is Christ in you, the hope of glory. You are so much more than what you have become. You are so much more than what you have become. This morning, I want to unpack three things for us to pray into, remember, and hold on to that will help you become, that will help you be more than what you have become. Number one, pray into, remember, and hold on to the Christ in you. So underline the Christ in you. When we look at ourselves in the mirror, we tend to see only ourselves. For instance, how sinful we are, how flawed we are, how we have stuffed up, and how we have failed God. I am absolutely convinced, though, that the best explanation for acts of evil committed by by humanity is the one that the Bible provides, that sin is the real problem. As Malcolm Muggeridge famously observed, the depravity of men is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time the most intellectually resisted fact. Jeremiah, the prophet, had this to say about the human heart. In Jeremiah 17, verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? This is the natural state of human nature. A Christian clinical psychologist and author, McMinn, who believes in the avocation, uh, believes in the uh, integration of psychology, theology, and spirituality, writes... Sin is bigger and more powerful than we know. It is not just a set of behaviors, but a condition that influences the very fabric of creation and touches every aspect of our existence. But then he goes on to make the assertion that without apprehending the destructiveness and hopelessness of sin, one cannot truly apprehend the depth and the richness of God's grace. In reflecting on the paradoxical truth of sin, he wrote... This is the message of sin and the story of Christian spirituality. It is not a sentence to despair or a call to self-hatred. Sin is the language that leads us to grace. Sin, as it were, is our only hope. The good news is that like the prodigal son, we aren't left standing at the pig trough. God sees us from a distance runs to greet us, embraces us in love, and celebrates our arrival. The ballad of sin is not so much a dirge as it is a prelude to grace. Facing our sin ultimately ushers us into the presence of grace, where we find forgiveness, mercy, hope, and celebration. This is what God wants sin to do to us. The devil wants to use sin to drive us away from God, but God wants to use sin to drive us back to himself. Keller says something similar. We only fully grasp the gospel when we understand, as Paul did, that we are the worst sinner we know. See? Sinfulness. Our sinfulness is only half of the truth. The gospel message is this. When you look at the mirror the next time, look past your guilt, look past your failure, look past your shame, look past your flaws and sins, and fix your gaze at the Christ in you the hope of glory. He who knew no sin but was made to be sin and took on judgment that we so rightly deserve in order that we might become the righteousness of God. Nothing can undo the finished work of redemption, restoration, and reconciliation of Jesus. In Christ, you are more loved and accepted than you ever dared hope. To illustrate this, I want to play a clip from Chosen, a TV series based on the life and ministry of Jesus. I think many of you would have seen it. If not, I encourage you to see it. In the clip, we're going to watch a fictionalized but highly believable dialogue between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Not fictionalized, though, is the fact that Mary had a trouble and a shameful past. The Bible gives us no details, except that she was delivered from seven demons, presumably by Jesus. And she becomes a follower of Jesus as a result of that transformation. In the previous episode, before this one, Mary uh, suffered some sort of a crisis triggered by uh, a present moment that she couldn't cope with. And so she goes to the tavern to drink herself silly. She gambles, and we presume that might have been a past life. But she runs away from Jesus and falls into sin. In this episode, Peter and Matthew were charged to locate her. And they do find her, ultimately. And then they bring her back to Jesus. And here is what happens next. It's not you. There's quite a lot going on right now. (laughs) So it's good to have you back. I don't know what to say. I don't require much. I'm so ashamed You redeemed me and I just threw it all away Well that's not much of a redemption It can be lost in a day, is it? (laughs) I owe you everything But I just don't think I can do it Do what? ...live up to it? Repay you? How could I leave? How could I go back... ...to the place I was? And I didn't even... ...I didn't even come back on my own. They had to come get me. (sighs) I just can't live up to it. Well, that's true. (laughs) But you don't have to. I just want your heart. The father just wants your heart. Give us that, which you already have. And the rest will come in time. Did you really think that you'd never struggle or sin again? I know how painful that moment was for you. I shouldn't. Someday. But not here. I'm just so sorry. Look up. I can You can. Can't. Look at me. I forgive you. It's over. confess that I watched this scene more than once. Um, It's a powerful scene. Because I find myself so forgetful of Christ. I only see the me. The intolerable me. The terrible me. And when we do that, we forget who we are in Christ. And so the first thing that we must remember and pray into and hold on to is the Christ. When you look at the mirror, see your king. See your Lord and Savior who laid his life down for you and for me. Willingly did it. The second thing to pray into, remember, and hold on to is Christ in me. Underline the whole phrase, the whole phrase. Christ in me. Jesus died on the cross, not just to redeem us from our guilt and sin and to absorb the wrath of God. He died so that we can be reconciled to God and enjoy intimate relationship with him. The message of Christianity has never been just about escaping the wrath of God, Rather, it has been about enjoying, thriving, and relishing in our restored, intimate relationship with God as His children. As Timothy Keller remarked, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. And we have that kind of access. We have that kind of access. That is what Christ in you is alluding to, our intimate relationship with God. And we catch a glimpse of that, didn't we, in the clip that we just watched, in that exchange between Mary and Jesus. Jesus underscores God's desire for intimacy with us in his teaching and prayer that he gave to his disciples in a large crowd in the Sermon on the Mount, in which he said in Matthew, Chapter 5, I think it is, verse 5. And when you pray, chapter 6, maybe. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their full reward. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father. And notice how many times the word Father is used. Pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret rewards, And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in hell, heaven, hallowed be your name. His instruction to address God as father was nothing short of radical. He was basically saying to the crowd and to us, come to God on a familial basis. In other words, the relationship God wants to have with us is meant to be personal and intimate, not formal and distant. Richard Foster in his book writes, in his book, A Prayer, Finding the Heart's True Home, he writes, prayer is nothing more than an ongoing love relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Mark's gospel, Jesus used the Aramaic word Father, Abba, in addition to Father. So Abba, Father. The New Testament scholar Murray Harris, who's been called one of the great Greek minds of our day, explains the meaning Abba. It was a polite and serious term, yet also colloquial colloquial and familiar, regularly used by adults, sons and daughters when addressing their father. Ideas of simplicity, intimacy, security, and affection Attached to this household word of childlike trust and obedience, Abba. No respectful Jew at the time, even now, would ever have dared to address God as Abba, Father. In John 16, verses 25 to 27, Catch the nuance here. Jesus said to his disciples, I said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. And I do not say to you, I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, you can ask the Father directly because the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and I believe that I came from God. You catch the nuance there? Go to God yourself, because I'm not going to go to to him on your behalf, because you can access him like I have access to him. You can have intimate relationship with him just like I have intimate relationship with him. My experience, uh, my relationship with my father can be yours as well. And in Jesus' moving high priestly prayer in John 17, That grace read earlier the longest prayer recorded in the gospels we see not only of his intimate relationship with god the father but his longing for us to have this intimacy as well in verse verses 20 to 21 my prayer is not for them alone i pray for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one as we are one. Father, just as you are in me and I I am in you, and now I am in them. See that language of you in me, I in you, and now I am in them. In verses 25 to 26, righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them. I want them to know the love that you have for me. I want them to know that as well for themselves. You catch that? I mean, we know that God the Father loves God the Son. All right, We know that. Can you hear what Jesus is praying? I want you, I want my disciples to experience that love too. Wow. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And finally, Christ in me. The underlying bit is the me bit. And let me say again that Jeremiah's assessment that the human heart is deceitful above all else and desperately wicked is timelessly true. However, as Larry Crabb notes, if our understanding of people is to be adequate, we must fully take into account both the beauty of our essential dignity and and the horror of our shameful depravity. An emphasis on either condition at the expense of the other will tend toward extremes. The answer to depression is not, deny yourself, deny me, and take up your cross. Because self is the root of every problem of humanity. See, such a perspective is founded on the fear that any talk on self-worth, self-esteem, self-acceptance, inevitably is inevitably self-centered, so much so that uh, words like humility and brokenness, two Christian virtues, very important Christian virtues, are assumed by some Christians to mean putting yourself down, never accepting compliments, and thinking lowly of yourself. How many of you are uncomfortable with compliments? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't say anything good about me. It's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. It's all you. You quickly want to shine the light on Jesus because we're so scared that if we draw any attention to your, ourselves or people give attention to us, that that is automatically self-centered. It's not. You can do both, can't you? Accept compliment and give praise to Jesus at the same time. Humility is not putting yourself down. It's not what humility means. The concern is legitimate, but misplaced. See, the Bible validates self-worth without ever ignoring human sinfulness. Despite the fall, brothers and sisters, our intrinsic value based on, on the fact that we're made in God's image remains. That is why even after the fall, God says, thou shalt not murder. We're fallen, but God still says, It's a no-go zone. You are made, people are made in my image. Therefore, murder is a sin. And James goes even further, the apostle James. He says, even after the fall, because we are made in God's image, that image is corrupted, but it's still there. That value is still there. You are not going to use your tongue to praise God on one hand and then curse another person. See, why? Because it's, you are denigrating a person made in God's image. And that's why, when we put sinners down, when we speak ill, even of those who are doing the wrong thing in a derogatory way, in a disrespectful way, we're being disrespectful to the image of God that is in the person. We're in danger of drawing out the, bath with the baby out with the bathwater when we categorically reject notions like self-worth. See, the problem is not the concept itself, but how it is understood and how our need for self-worth is met. A biblical view argues that our need for self-worth is met in the gospel. The basis of our self-worth is rooted in the unconditional love, acceptance, and grace of God, which, God, which Christ demonstrated by dying on the cross. John Stott puts it this way, nobody who reads the gospel as a whole could possibly gain the impression that Jesus had a negative attitude to human beings or encourage one and others. The opposite is the case. Despite the fall, we're still fearfully and wonderfully made. The me, the me in Christ in me is critically important. Keller holds the tension perfectly when he wrote this, and I love this. The Christian gospel is that I am so floored that Jesus had to necessarily die for me. Yet, I am so loved and so valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This understanding leads to deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. It undermines both swaggering and sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think uh, more of myself or less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. You see the difference? I think of myself less. And let me conclude this point with Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I, the I that is not rooted in Christ, the rebellious I, I have been crucified to Christ. It is no longer I, that, that rebellious I, that, that, that I that is not rooted in Christ, that I no longer live, But Christ lives in I, (laughs) the other I, the I that is rooted in Christ, the I that derives his sense of worth and identity and acceptance from Christ himself. That I, Christ lives in. Nothing can ever separate you from the love of God. Greater is the one who lives in you than anything that you'll ever face. Whatever it is that you're facing and struggling with, God is facing it with you. He has not and will never abandon you because he loves you. Know this, believe this, and stand on this. Christ in you. Christ in me. The hope of glory. In closing, here are the three things to pray into, to remember and hold on to, that will help you be more And what you've become, the Christ in me, underline the Christ. Number two, the Christ in me, underline the whole thing, and the Christ in me, the underlined me. I'm saying all of that because uh, it is on Spotify, so I want people (laughs) to know which one I'm talking about. So what do we do with what we've heard this morning? As I said last week, a uh, Christian without a strong sense of their identity in Christ is like a tree without roots. So it is vital that we be doers of the word because it is by being doers of the word that his truth takes root in our lives. So this is what I'd like to suggest to you, that you spend time with the Lord this week, Peer into the watering hole, as it were, or peer into this mirror. Maybe use this image as your as your uh, reference point. Peer into it, as it were, and ask him, the Christ in you, which part of it have you forgotten? Which part of it are you the weakest? Which part of you... Which part of it that you need to ask him to help you remember? Is it the Christ? Is it the Christ in you? Or is it the Christ in you? And the second thing I would encourage you to do, maybe not this week, but sometime, watch The Lion King. The 1994 animation, not the CGI. The CGI, not good. The animation one is a much, much better version. So yeah, watch that and ask God to speak to you. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, I ask that you will seal the truths that need to take hold in our hearts. Seal that this morning in Jesus' name. We live in an age where we have access to so much information. But there are very, very important things, Lord, that we must remember, and then there are other things that we can take it or leave it. But our new identity, which you have given us, is so important that we remember, so important that we do not forget. So I pray, God, that when we leave this place, that you keep hammering this truth to us. Christ in us, the hope of glory, the mystery that has been hidden for ages and kept from generations have now been disclosed. And this mystery is Christ. This mystery is Christ in me, This mystery is Christ in me, the hope of glory. I ask this in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that you have been blessed by the message. Windsor Road Baptist Church is a growing intergenerational and international community of people committed to whole life discipleship. Please visit us at windsorroad.org.au to connect with us and to learn more about our church.